0: To verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice. Because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded On what principle? On that observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So this passage, as you've noticed, is jam-packed with theological truth. There's a lot here for us to get our our minds around. And I think there are fundamentally three things that Paul does addresses in this passage, Roman 3. He talks at great length about human sinfulness, and we're going to look at that tonight. Then the good news is he talks about there being a new way of righteousness, a new way to be right with God. And then finally, he, he goes into detail about Jesus' sacrifice of atonement. So these are the three things that we're going to look at tonight. But before we get there, verses 1 to 9 contain five rhetorical questions. Do you all know what a rhetorical question is? That's when your dad says to you, does money grow on trees? Okay, he knows it doesn't grow on trees. He's just checking that you know it doesn't grow on trees. Okay, that's a rhetorical question. We often say, is the Pope Catholic? You know, it's kind of like, of course he is, yes. You know, so rhetorical questions is when you ask a question to make a point, often a little sarcastic, um, but you're not asking the question because you really don't know the answer. So in the beginning of chapter three, there are actually five rhetorical questions, and we're just going to fly over them. This is just kind of because it's good to at least cover what's there. So the first rhetorical question is, what advantage then is there in being a Jew and this whole circumcision thing? So that's a question Paul asks. And, and his answer is, well, well, actually great advantage. They've been entrusted with the very words of God. So Paul is saying being Jewish is a great thing. Yes, there is an advantage to being Jewish. You've, you've been blessed with this heritage. You were the nation and out of all of the nations of the world that were entrusted with God's law and with bringing God's Messiah into this world. The second question he asks and then answers is, well, what if some people didn't have faith back in the Old Testament? Will their lack of faith nullify what God was up to, God's faithfulness? So so he's asking the question, what about Jews in the Old Testament that didn't believe in God? And his answer is, well, it doesn't really matter because God's doing his own thing and nobody's going to stop what God's doing. The third question is, and it's built on this idea, you know, the more I, the worst kind of a person I am, if God then saves me, the more it reveals how awesome and gracious God is. You understand that principle? If you're a really terrible person that's murdered a thousand people, and then God forgives you and brings you into his family, it really shows a lot about how gracious God is. So actually the worse somebody's been When God saves them, the more God is glorified by that. But we can't misuse this. So again, here's the rhetorical question. What if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness all the more? And he says we can't do that. Is God unjust in bringing his wrath upon us? I'm I'm using a human argument. Paul says certainly not. If that was so, how could God judge the world? Oh, here's the point I made a moment ago. If my, this is the fourth rhetorical question, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not then say, as people are slanderously reporting that we are saying, let us do evil that good may result? And Paul's answer to that question is, their condemnation is deserved. If you're thinking like that, you you don't understand the gospel. And his fifth rhetorical question is this. Again, it's about the Jews. What shall we conclude then? Are Jews better than the Gentiles? And his answer is, not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. So those are Paul's rhetorical questions. I want to get into now the first of my big, big points for the sermon, and that's the idea of human sinfulness. Human sinfulness. Have you ever asked yourself, what is wrong with the world that we live in? What's wrong with the world? Have you ever felt something doesn't seem right about it? There's so much pain and violence and suffering and injustice. The world is actually a terrible place. And we happen to live in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And actually, most of us are tremendously privileged and for the most part are sheltered from some of the realities of life that affect billions. But what is wrong with the world? Some people say, well, the gods are fighting among themselves and we're kind of the collateral damage. Many people in Africa would say, well, the ancestors are angry and they're taking it out on us. In India, they would say it's karma. Those terrible things we've done in our previous thousand lives are coming back to bite us. Also in Africa, animists would say, well, we've offended a spirit or two and now they're playing tricks on us. A materialist, a person that's an atheist, might say, well, it's just bad luck. It's Murphy's Law in action. And people can't agree on what's wrong with the world. And if you sit in a class at university, you'll hear many of your professors in the arts faculties of humanities explaining to you what's wrong with the world. And one of the best explanations is, is Marx's explanation that there's this power struggle between those that own the means of production and those that do all the work. And if we could just sort out that, we'd, we'd have utopia. What's big today is, is, is racialism, critical race theory, the idea that what's wrong with the world is that different races are, are, are always trying to get one up on each other. The humanists will say people are essentially good, and if it wasn't for society messing them up, we'd all be happy. Behaviorists would say, well, we're just really like kind of very clever animals, and that morality itself is a social construct. So people go to great lengths to explain what is wrong with the world and how to fix it. Do you know what the Bible's answer is as to what's wrong with the world? It's it's that you and I are in it. That is the biblical view of what is wrong with the world. It's that the likes of us inhabit this world. So let's read what Paul says. There is no one righteous. Righteous not even one, so that excludes you. There is no one who really understands what God is like, what God is about. This is obviously talking about people before God saves them. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and together become worthless. There is no one who does good what sometimes looks like good is really people doing, like, good things to, for fun motives. And so Paul goes on, and there's no fear of God before them. Different cultures develop vocabulary to explain well different things, like describing rain in Scotland or snow in Iceland, or sin in the Hebrew language. They were very good at identifying what sin was. There was iniquity, there was transgression, there was was guilt, and so it went on. Do you know that in this whole text here, these are all quotations from the Old Testament, every verse here is a quotation from the Old Testament. That shows you just how well Paul knew his Bible. He could have said, I'm an apostle, let me just tell you, everybody's sinful. Or, I feel the Lord is saying to me that everybody is sinful. He doesn't say that. He makes his case by quoting the Old Testament. And there are lots of quotations. And this is why I wanted you to have your phone out. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. That's from Psalm 14, where it says, goes on to say, there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's also from Psalm 53 that actually appears to be almost identical to Psalm 14. The second quotation Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. This is from Psalm 5. There it is. You can see the quote. You see how Paul is quoting the Old Testament. Here's his third quotation. The poison of vipers is on their lips. This is from Psalm 140. His fourth quotation, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's from Psalm 10 verse 7. His fifth quotation, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. That's describing the human heart. And that's a quote from Isaiah 59. The sixth quote, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That comes from Psalm 36. Isn't that interesting how well Paul knows his Bible. Let me tell you what else the Bible teaches about human sinfulness. We've got to cover the bad news before we can appreciate the good news. The first thing we need to know is that all of us are born into sin. We sin and do wrong things because we are sinners. We don't become sinners because we do wrong things. Sometimes we get that a bit muddled up. Paul writes later in Romans 5, he talks about sin entered the world. And in Paul's mind, that's why we all die, because all have sinned. And the wages of sin, the result of sin is death. In Genesis 6, we read God saying in in the sixth chapter of the Bible that every inclination of the thoughts of people's hearts was only evil all of the time. The Bible doesn't paint a pretty picture of human nature, and that's why God destroyed everyone in, in the great flood. Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sin of adultery and murder and a cover-up, and he really gets it. He comes before the Lord and he says, Surely, Lord, I, I understand this now. Sin is not a new, a new development in my life. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's what the Bible says about human beings. They are sinful from the moment they are conceived. You might find that hard to swallow, but that's what the Bible teaches. Surely I was sinful. Paul later in his life, even though he's been a a Pharisee, he was brought up to be a goody-goody. His whole life was studying God's word, trying to live a holy life. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me, in my sinful nature, which is the nature that you have when you're born. And I, I experience this because I desire to do the good things, but I can't carry it out, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep doing. I'm messed up, Paul says. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's how Paul describes his own life, when he was an outstanding citizen. That's why in Romans 3, Paul says, there is no difference. All have sinned, and we fall short, present tense, and we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of what God intended for us as human beings. This is why we need salvation. This is why we need to be given a new heart. This is why we need to be, be made alive in Christ. This is why we need to be born again and have a fresh start and have our old heart ripped out and and a, and a heart of flesh, soft heart put into us. Hence Paul's statement in verse 20. We are getting to the good news. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. There is no human being who's ever walked this planet except for Jesus who could ever prove their worthiness and their goodness through actually obeying the laws that God has set forth for us to live by. No one's ever been able to do it, and nor can we do it. Paul is quite clear here that the only reason... He gave those laws to us in the Old Testament was to make us conscious of our sins. That was the purpose of the law. It was never a mechanism by which we could jump through all the hoops and impress God. That was never going to happen. The only reason God gave us laws was so that we could see what a bunch of failures we all are and how in desperate need of his grace and forgiveness that we are. Right, moving swiftly on. A righteousness from God. So Paul's made the point, we're all sinners. He's made the point, none of us are ever going to prove our our goodness to God by obeying his laws. It's never going to happen. This is the gospel. But now, a a righteousness from God, apart from the law, there's a new way to be righteous before God that doesn't involve jumping through hoops. Apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, all of the laws and the prophets of the Old Testament, they pointed to Jesus. All that ceremonial stuff, do this, don't do that, cut your hair like this, eat this, walk there, do that. All of that stuff was was shaping our thinking. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. It's for Jews and for Gentiles. It's for all of us. There is a way to be righteous before God, and it's been made known to us. I said this, the law and the prophets testify to it. Interestingly, how Paul links back to the Old Testament, What are some verses in the Old Testament that talk about this new way of righteousness? Well, the most famous one comes from Genesis chapter 15, where where God just randomly selects Abram. There was nothing good about Abram. He worshipped the moon. He was like all of us, not interested in God, doing his own thing, living his own life. And God appeared to him and said, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he says, but I'm so old. I've never had a child. This guy here is going to be my heir, one of my servants. We can't have children. I don't know how you're going to do that, God. And God says to him, verse 6, look at this, the heavens, count the stars, verse 5. Indeed, if you can count them. I know you can't. Then he said to him, that's how many kids you're going to have. And then we read what's actually some of the most famous verses, most famous verse in the whole of the Old Testament. It's often referenced in the New Testament. Here it is. God spoke to Abram and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And in verse 6 we read, Abram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, credited to him as righteousness. Do you see what just happened right there? Abraham didn't obey any laws. He didn't jump through any hoops. He didn't impress God in any way. He was a nobody. God reached out to him, gave him a promise, we read, Abram believed the Lord, and he was credited with righteousness. So here in the Old Testament is an example of somebody being credited with righteousness. Here's another famous example from Habakkuk 2. In Habakkuk 2, the prophet Habakkuk is complaining to God and saying, Why are these nations being so cruel to us? Why are you allowing these terrible things to happen to us, Lord? And the Lord says to Habakkuk, it's actually going to get much worse. And then there's that whole thing coming about, the the fig tree does not blossom and all that stuff. But at some point we read the Lord saying, the righteous will live by faith. These are examples of the kind of righteousness that comes to people, not by obeying laws or by doing things or by earning it, but simply by believing in God, trusting in God. Back to Romans 3, this righteousness from God comes through faith to all who believe. Verse 24, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, what made people right with God? It wasn't being born Jewish. It wasn't offering the right sacrifices. It wasn't praying three times a day. It was believing in God. That's what credit was credited to, pe- to people as righteousness. And the third thing Paul writes about here in Romans 3, is Jesus' sacrifice of atonement. Jesus' sacrifice of atonement. Again, you can't make head or tail of this unless you understand what atonement was in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament was preparing the way for the arrival of Christ. So Paul tells us here that Jesus is our Our sacrifice of atonement. There was a very famous movie a long time ago called Atonement. It's about a woman who did a terrible thing when she was young and she spent her whole life trying to make up for it. But what does atonement mean? The Sunday school definition is atonement. It's if two parties have been separated from one another and now there's animosity, there's a problem. Someone's offended someone and, and, and there's, there's a need for reconciliation. Atonement is that thing that, that brings people back together again. That's what atonement is it, it's what mends the separation. It's what neutralizes the offense. It's what absorbs the anger of the situation. And this is what happens with our relationship with God. There is an offense on God's side. We have offended God by how we've lived more than we could ever imagine. And He is offended. And the Bible says he turns his face away from us. There is wrath and anger, and rightly so, towards humanity and what we've done to one another and what we've done to this planet. And we are not in unity with God. We are not naturally in a relationship with God. There is a need for atonement. I don't know if you've ever had to make up A relationship with someone maybe you've really offended somebody I hope it's all happened to you you know so that we can all be human together and not live in cloud cookie land (laughs) then you got to buy her flowers I am truly sorry atonement bake a cake give a gift get on your knees this is how in life we make amends to each other. We have to say, I'm truly sorry for what I said and how I'm offended you. I hope you find it in your heart to forgive me. I'm going to try my hardest never to do that again. I am really sorry. That's how we, we make things right with people. And, and something has to happen to, to make right with God. In Judaism, in the Old Testament, flowing out of Leviticus chapter 16, there is this thing called the Day of Atonement. This was the, the most holiest day in Judaism and still is. Yom Kippur. This year it's going to be on Tuesday, the 8th of October. So if you are read them, you can have a public holiday. This is the day when the high priest would go into the most holy place, sacrifice an animal and sprinkle its blood on this thing that was called the mercy seat and and would make atonement for the whole nation. This was over and above individuals offering atonement and guilt offerings for their own sins. This was kind of the national thing. It was the day of the year where the Jews made right with God. It was offering a propitiation. Anybody know what that word means? Oh, well done, Brad. It's something to do with turning away the wrath of God. That's what a propitiation is. But back to Romans 3. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, the one that makes us at one with God again and at peace with Him. People sometimes ask, well, why was it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross? Why couldn't God just forgive people's sins? You know, that's what the Muslims believe. If Allah wants to forgive people, He can just do it. People say, well, why can't Yahweh, the God of the Christians, just forgive people? Why? you know, like absolve them, give them amnesty. Uh, turn a blind eye. Can't do God do that? Paul tells us why God couldn't do that. He's talking about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, why Jesus had to die. And he said he did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he'd left, the sins committed beforehand unpunished. For centuries, when people had sinned, God had just done nothing. He just stood passively by. Forbearance, I had to look it up. It means self-restraint. God was holding back, but the time came where God had to show that He was angry with sin and that there were consequences to human sin. He did this, Jesus dying on the cross, to demonstrate his justice. God was showing that sin has consequences, that he is angry with sin, that it does matter, and that he couldn't just overlook it. He did it to demonstrate his justice at this present time so as to be just. And then there's some more good news. And to be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died to demonstrate God's justice. And he died to justify those who have faith in Jesus. Romans 5 also tells us that Jesus died on the cross. It was God demonstrating his own love for us. While we were still sinners, while we were doing our own thing, not interested in God, going our own way, while we were in enmity with God, He demonstrated His love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. The previous verse says, very rarely will anyone die for a good person, but someone might possibly—sorry— Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But Jesus dared to die for us while we were against him. In other words, the horror of the cross demonstrates for us the justice of God and the love of God. God has made it possible for each one of us to have a relationship with him. The offense of our sin can be forgiven. God's wrath can now be averted. Our lives can be transformed. We can be forgiven, made spiritually alive, given a new heart, brought into a relationship with God, experience God's love. These things are all now possible because of the cross, because Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Believe it or not, this passage ends with five more rhetorical questions. I'm like, really, Paul, do you have to ask so many questions? Apparently so. We'll get to those questions in just a moment and I'm done. So what's wrong with this world? Why is there so much pain and suffering and hurt? It's because of people just like us. You know there's that song, Absolutely Flawless. Anybody know that song? We should sing a song, Absolutely Flawed, because that would be more theologically correct. Evil permeates every aspect of the human condition. We can't help ourselves, but we are responsible. But the good news is that we can be reconciled to God. We can be forgiven. Though we were objects of his wrath, we can become objects of his love and have his love lavished upon us, we can be transformed. Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate day of atonement. Every day of atonement in the Old Testament was just a warm-up for that day. And every time a Jew celebrates the day of atonement in our day, They don't know it, but they're looking back to Jesus' death on the cross. God has made a way for us to be right with him. Some more rhetorical questions and we're done. Do you spot the five questions? No, it's quite tricky. Here they are highlighted. Where then is boasting? Boom, it's excluded. On what principle? On that observing the law, no ways, but on faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God and who will, who will justify the circumcised by faith? that's Jewish people, will be justified by faith in Jesus and uncircumcised Gentile people through the same kind of faith. We're not saved by doing good works. We are saved through having faith. And that faith, that trust in God is credited to us as righteousness. Let me lead us in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for Paul's explanation of the gospel here in Romans chapter 3. Thank you, Lord, for making it so clear that we are sinners, that there is no one righteous, not even one, nobody who seeks God. That we thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to yourself. You've made a way for us to be forgiven for your divine justice to be satisfied that on the cross you demonstrated your justice and you demonstrated your love, Lord. And each and every one of us wants to say tonight, We believe, Lord, we believe in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, in the atonement of his life. Lord, we recognize that we are not saved by doing good works. We are not saved because our good deeds outweigh our bad. We're not saved because we happen to be born into the right race and be Jewish or get to offer the right sacrifices. Thank you for setting us free from hoop-jumping, from law-keeping. Thank you for your promise to give us a new heart. And we invite you, Lord, come into our lives. Bring us into that wonderful relationship with you that we read about in the New Testament. Save us, Lord. Forgive us for the mistakes we've made, the sins we've forgiven, the rebellion deep in our hearts. Cleanse us of our sins and give to us this new new righteousness that is available through Christ. We look to you, Lord, and we trust in you. Not in our own good deeds, but in your death on the cross. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Howard. Awesome. will not you guys just stand and, and join us as we worship.